Dublin, 1171. A small, underfed and overtired group of Norman soldiers, led by Richard de Clare, the Earl of Pembroke, more commonly known as Strongbow, are stuck behind the walls of a cramped medieval Dublin. This tiny settlement is besieged on all sides by Rory O'Connor, the High King and most powerful King in Ireland. Alongside Rory are his four main allies. Tiernan O'Rourke, the vengeful King of Breffney, who keeps a watchful eye on the northern escape out of Dublin. The King of Osry mans the west, while armies allied to Lawrence O'Toole, the Archbishop of Dublin, covers the southern pass. Out in Dublin Bay are 30 Norse longships from the Norwegian colonies in the Isle of Man and Western Scottish Isles. These Viking longships are blocking any possible seaborne attempts to flee. Inside the walls of the city, which measures approximately 600 metres long and 400 metres wide, the Normans are huddling together, are watching, wondering, waiting for reinforcements to arrive and end their suffering. But the reinforcements will never arrive. And they will never arrive for two main reasons. Firstly, many of their Norman brethren are also encircled and besieged, trapped within another settlement 100 miles south of Dublin. And Wexfordtown is besieged by, quote, 3,000 men from Kinsale, end quote. This group of Normans are in no position to help their Dublin counterparts, as an army made up of a mixture of natives and Norse alike tighten their noose on their location. These Normans in Dublin need a miracle, or even just a change of scenery. After all, Norman knights upon horseback prefer to fight in the open and not to be cramped in behind city walls in tight, winding medieval streets. The second reason why no help will arrive is because the King of England, King Henry II, who first permitted Strongbow and his compatriots to head to Ireland to help Dermot McMurrow regain his kingdom, is growing more jealous and more paranoid of the progression that these Norman mercenaries have made in Ireland. His scorn swiftly turns to betrayal, and by royal decree, King Henry II prevents all ships, supplies and soldiers from travelling to Ireland to help out. Inside the walls of medieval Dublin, Strongbow and his men are truly in between a rock and a hard place. Already on emergency rations and having to fight battles against well-trained Viking berserkers and other well-fed and rested enemy, the Normans' position seems untenable. With less than two weeks of supplies left, these Norman knights are weighing up their options and hatching a plan. This last throw of the dice. The ultimate do-or-die moment is a last-ditch attempt by these Norman mercenaries who have come to Ireland in search of land, wealth and power. They have to break the siege to maintain a powerful foothold and to keep their new Irish possessions to themselves. But who were the Normans and why were they here in Dublin? The Normans had landed in 1167 to help Dermot McMurrow, the deposed King of Leinster, reclaim his lands from the High King of Ireland, Rory O'Connor. Now while this small army did achieve its aims of restoring Dermot back to power, it was eventually forced to surrender by Rory O'Connor, the High King. One of the main terms of this surrender was that the use of foreign soldiers were banned. But this ban was never enforced. But word had spread 
1169, more Normans arrived, and 1170, Strongbow, the leader of the Norman conquest of Ireland, appeared on the scene. From then on, there has been an English presence in Ireland that has lasted for centuries. Now what was Ireland like in the middle of the 12th century? In a word, conflicted. Here's a quote from Gerard of Wales, a contemporary chronicler of the Norman invasion. Quote, By the middle of the 12th century, these kings of Connacht, Munster, Meath, Leinster, Breffney and Ossery, the would-be high kings and their supporters and rivals, had by their marches and their wars most effectually upset Ireland. End quote. The number of battles was increased at that time by the entry to the stage of the northern king of the Kinnell Own, who was at that time no more fitted than the rest to rule the lot. One of the supporters of Murtoch, king of the Kinnell Own, was a struggling king, Dermot McMurrough, the king of Leinster. Dermot had fought to retain local power, and perhaps with wider hopes, the thoughts of reclaiming his ancestral lands of Connacht by supporting the claim of Murtoch, the king of the Kinlone, to the high kingship. When Murtoch was overpowered and killed in 1166, Dermot suffered terribly from his downfall. Soon Rory O'Connor, the last of the high kings, together with Dermot's particular enemy, Tiernan O'Rourke, the king of Breffney, threatened Leinster. It was bad enough that McMurrow's ally had been defeated and killed in battle, but there was a personal animosity between McMurrow and O'Rourke, a deep-seated hatred between the two that spanned decades. Because years before, in 1152, while actually assisting O'Rourke, Dermot fell madly in love with O'Rourke's wife, Dervgala. Dermot had kidnapped or eloped with O'Rourke's wife. It depends on which source you believe. Understandably, whether it was an elopement or a kidnapping, O'Rourke was wild with fury and an unbridled hatred grew between the two of the men that lasted years. But back in 1166, alarmed at the growing strength of his opponents and conscious that O'Rourke's chances of revenge were increasing, Dermot broke the rules of the grim game of royal rivalry that they were playing for so long. Up until this point, they had shown violence in plenty in this veritable game of thrones. In order to succeed or eliminate your competitors from the role of kingship, potential kings blinded and maimed their opponents. Sometimes these were relatives, thus putting them out of the race for kingship. Very few holds were barred and many kings did awful things to their competitors and family just to make sure that they get the kingship. But the results of this strife had been, at least since the time of the Norse incursions, domestic matters. They were an Irish problem solved by Irish kings. Speaking of kings, Rory O'Connor was the King of Connacht from 1156 to 1166 and the High King of Ireland from 1166 until 1193. He did abdicate twice in the 1180s, but essentially he reigned until 1193. He had gained support through his kinsmen, fellow Connacht men like Tiernan O'Rourke, to name but a few. And while Rory O'Connor tried and succeeded in removing Dermot McMurrough from his kingdom, that was more of a political move rather than a personal one. Rory O'Connor was undoubtedly the most powerful Irish king, but that was by Irish standards and by Irish ways of warfare. All of that was about to change. 
Rory's main ally, Tiernan O'Rourke, the man whose wife Dermot had stolen many years previous. He was in no mood for forgiveness. O'Rourke was not satisfied with just removing Dermot from his lands in 1166. He personally wanted to kill the man who bestowed such an insult upon him. And this revenge would not come for O'Rourke in 1166 when they defeated the upstart McMurrow. But when Tiernan and Rory had surrounded Dermot and his Norman allies in behind Dublin walls in the summer of 1171. Or so he believed. Once Dermot McMurrow had lost his kingdom in 1166, he had to gather his thoughts and figure out his next move. And what Dermot did was he left Ireland and sought the aid of the Norman king, King Henry II of England. Dermot travelled to King Henry's court and sought military aid in a bid to regain his power. Dermot would and did offer quite the reward, including his daughter Aoife, to anybody, and I mean literally anybody, who would help him out. Once Dermot reached King Henry's castle, despair set in. Henry II wasn't there, but was actually in his kingdom of Aquitaine in France. Dermot, who was already low on money and resources, had to turn about and head for France. He didn't even know if King Henry would receive him, but he persevered nonetheless. Eventually, after many months of travelling, Dermot and Henry finally met in Aquitaine. Dermot regaled the English king of his plight and sought any form of help that would assist him in the recovery of his kingdom of Leinster. Henry, however, was not instilled to help Dermot. He was rather busy consolidating his French lands as well as his English kingdom from potential suitors, including Henry's own sons. But that's not to say that King Henry didn't have his own designs on Ireland. King Henry II once said, quote, To show to all future times that the realm of Ireland is subject to the crown of England by an indissoluble bond. End quote. King Henry II ultimately refused to help Dermot himself, but he did send letters around England and the realm stating that, quote, Any help given to said Dermot would not be looked unfavourably by the king. End quote. In other words, King Henry II is saying, if you want to help out this guy, you can do so. If you don't want to, uh, don't worry about it. I couldn't really care about it either way at this point. But Henry did allow McMurrow to recruit mercenary soldiers from among his subjects. McMurrow was elated with this news and rushed back to England to find suitable military men to support him in his deeds. However, after many rejections, he eventually found suitable support from Norman lords in Wales. Dermot offered his daughter Aoife's hand in marriage to many lords, including Fitzstephen and Morris, but both these men were already married. So they suggested a man in his 40s by the name of Richard de Clare, the second Earl of Pembroke, more commonly known as Strongbow. McMurrow ultimately persuaded Strongbow to assist him, promising the inheritance of Leinster in return. McMurrow initially returned to Leinster in 1167 with a small band of 40 knights and 60 other horsemen and 500 archers. Strongbow didn't follow him at this point. McMurrow was able to regain his kingdom of Leinster and elated with this success, McMurrow raised his hopes even further still. He set his sights on not only on Leinster, but also of taking Connacht and even the High Kingship 
by force, paying back O'Rourke and O'Connor for their earlier deeds in 1166. But these ideas were short-lived. Nearly as soon as McMurrah had reclaimed his Kingdom of Leinster at the royal seat of Ferns in County Wexford, he was intercepted by Rory O'Connor, Tierno O'Rourke and Emil Shocklin. Outnumbered and overpowered, McMurrah was forced to bend the knee. Although no actual fighting took place, quite often Irish kings preferred negotiations rather than battle. And on this occasion, McMurrah was allowed to remain in Ireland to retain his kingdom, but he was forced to pay 100 ounces of gold to O'Rourke for the kidnapping of his wife, Dervgala. That proved that under Breton law, the abduction of O'Rourke's wife by Dermot was unlawful. McMurrah also had to give hostages to Rory. Giving and taking of hostages was generally to preserve that treaty so no one would break it. One of these hostages was Dermot's son. The taking of hostages really forced McMurrow's hand to behave well. If he didn't, well then his son would be killed. Another one of the terms of this negotiation was that Rory O'Connor demanded Dermot's Norman followers leave Ireland and never return. But no Norman hostages had been taken. So this element of the treaty was never to be enforced. And who knows? Had O'Connor and O'Rourke been quick to physically overcome Dermot and his foreign cohort in battle and not negotiate, perhaps the flood of Norman knights in Ireland may have been kept at bay for several more decades. The more realistic Normans were soon to use more brutal but far more effective methods than the Irish to obtain their goals. It wasn't until the arrival of Robert Fitzstephen, Hervey de Montmorency and Raymond Le Gros in 1169 and eventually Strongbow himself in 1170, that McMurrow would meet with success. Now for those of you who don't know who the Normans were, the Normans were soldiers of Viking descent who had settled in the northwest of France after pillaging raids on the French countryside and on the city of Paris too. The terrified French monarchy decided to give the Viking leader, Rollo, land to create his own kingdom, which is still named after Norsemen today. That is, Normandy. Perhaps the most famous Norman king was William the Conqueror who defeated Harold Godwinson in the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and subsequently conquered England. It is from this stock that Strongbow and his Norman followers in Ireland would derive from. Now Richard de Clare or Strongbow as he's more commonly known in Irish history was descended from very noble stock being from the famous family the de Clares. Now he's not necessarily what you think of. His complexion was somewhat ruddy, his skin freckled, he had grey eyes, feminine features, a weak voice and a short neck. Quote, For the rest, he was tall in stature, a man of great generosity and of courteous manner. What he failed by accomplishing by force, he succeeded in gentle words. In time of peace, he was more disposed to be led by others than to command. Out of camp, he had more the air of an ordinary man-at-arms than that of a general-in-chief. But in action, the mere soldier was forgotten in the commander. With the advice of those about him, he was ready to fight anything. But he never ordered any attack relying on his own judgment, or rashly presuming on his personal courage. The post he occupied in battle was a sure rallying point for his troops. His equanimity and firmness in all the vicissitudes of war were remarkable 
being neither driven to despair in adversity nor puffed up by his success. End quote. Strongbow landed in Ireland on the 23rd of August 1170 with 200 men of arms and another 1,000 troops of various qualities. Once he landed in Waterford, the invasion assumed with his new leader a new aspect. Its motive was no longer assistance of Dermot McMurrow, but rather of conquest. Raymond Le Gros, who preceded him, brought 210 knights and over a 1,000 archers, as well as other footmen. King Henry, in the time between 1166 and 1170, had fallen out more and more with Strongbow. This is the reason why Strongbow arrived in 1170, so many years after the first Normans arrived. King Henry had sent Strongbow to Germany as personal bodyguard to his daughter, who was being married to a German prince. As well as that, he was dilatory in his answers as to whether he was going to allow Strongbow to go to Ireland. Now, the Earl was a gambler, and he weighed up his options. Some days the king would say yes, some days the king would say no, you're not allowed to go. But when word had arrived to Strongbow that his men were struggling, especially after the Battle of Bagenbun, where some contemporary writers would say this was the day Ireland was lost forever, Strongbow knew he had to go to Ireland and would have to deal with King Henry later. Once he made up his mind to go, Strongbow informed the king and King Henry actually ordered him not to go. He said that if Strongbow was to go, all of his castles, all of his land and all his possessions in Wales would be forfeited and Strongbow would lose everything. Once Strongbow had landed in Waterford, they quickly took the town. Strongbow then had his stag do in Reginald's Tower. Then the next day, Strongbow married Dermot McMorrow's daughter and therefore legitimately putting himself forward as the first non-Irish person to have a direct claim on an Irish kingdom once the ageing Dermot passed away. And this was not a marriage of love, which is so often in history, but rather a political alliance. Aoife was just roughly 25 and Strongbow 20 years her senior. Once the nuptials had concluded and having his Norman allies secure Wexford town, Strongbow, Dermot and their combined forces marched northwards towards Dublin. Dermot knew that all of Ireland would be summoned to defend Dublin and so he knew he had to take a road, quite literally, less travelled. Rory O'Connor and his allies had blockaded the northern and western entrances to Dublin. They figured that the Wicklow Mountains to the south of Dublin would negate any approach by the Normans. But they were wrong. Dermot guided Strongbow and their men over the ridges of the Wicklow Mountains and through his father's old lands in Glendalough. They moved swiftly and smartly. They descended unexpectedly by a mountain track from Glendalough down into the Vale of Dublin on the city's southern flank. This approach caught the Dublin defenders completely by surprise and by September 1170, both Dermot and Strongbow were under the walls of Dublin city. But battle didn't take place. Instead, protracted negotiations followed. Land was being divided amongst the Irish kings but this was of no use to Strongbow and his Norman allies. These guys had lost everything, especially Strongbow, who had all of his lands, castles and possessions confiscated by King Henry II once he left for Ireland. And so, probably in secret, Milo de Cogan and Raymond Le Gros were ordered by Strongbow to suddenly interrupt these negotiations and assault the town. 
and they did so with gusto and very rapidly the Normans who were camped outside were over the walls and had seized it. Hasculf MacTorkel, the Norse king of Dublin and many of his Norse townsmen fled overseas. Rory and his Irish forces withdrew. The Irish analysts indicate that Rory and his allies believed themselves to have been deserted by the, by the Dublin Norsemen. Dermot decided to improve on his position and raided the territory of his personal enemy, Tiernan O'Rourke. But remember the Treaty of 1167 when Rory O'Connor, the High King, curtailed Dermot once he had regained Leinster? And one of the terms of that treaty was the hostage giving and taking. And one of those hostages was Dermot's son. And the reason why Rory O'Connor had Dermot's son as a hostage was to make sure that Dermot was well behaved. But Dermot was no longer being well behaved. And as per terms of the treaty, Rory O'Connor killed Dermot's son. He had the dead body delivered to Dermot in a sack, just as if he was delivering potatoes to the market. Dermot was so horrified and upset by this that his health began to take a turn for the worst. Quote, he, by whom, in the language of the analysts, a trembling sod was made of all Ireland, died in Ferns, May 1st, 1170. End quote. Following Dermot's death, the Kingdom of Leinster passed to his son-in-law Strongbow, as did the Kingdom of Dublin, once Haskell's MacTurkle and all the Norsemen had been kicked out of Dublin by Strongbow and his Norman lords. The pattern of future rule of Ireland had been laid down as more and more Irish kingdoms were to be taken over during the Norman conquest of Ireland. What was the secret to the success of these Normans in the last few years that had elapsed since their first coming in the 1160s? And how can their still greater success in the conquest of Ireland be explained? I believe that the victory of the Normans was due to their military ability and to the fact that they were much better equipped than the Irish were. It was also a consequence of the Irish slowness in action and of the Irish political circumstances which made effective opposition to the intruders almost impossible. But primarily, it was a matter of military superiority. The Normans were descendants of a warlike race that in the century of transition from Vikings to feudal rulers in northern France and a further century of conquest and struggle in England and Wales, they had grown increasingly formidable. While in France they had become horsemen, they had perfected their armour and weapons and fighting techniques. Some form of protective clothing was always worn by most of the Norman horsemen, but in general the foot soldier was less well armoured. The Bayou Tapestry, which was completed sometime in the 1080s, and is by far the best pictorial source of information on the arms and armour of the Normans, contains a total of 201 armed men, of whom 79 are wearing some armour. The usual form of body armour used by the Norman horsemen was a knee-length mail shirt called a hauberk. These hauberks had a three-quarter length sleeves and was split from the waist to fork out to facilitate riding. Although usually constructed of mail, the hauberk does occasionally seem to have been made by overlapping scales of stiff material such as cowhorn. But such scale armour never seriously challenged the supremacy of mail formed of interlinked riveted rings that could be made very strong and because of its pliability it still gave the soldier complete freedom of movement which was so vital in riding a horse and in battle. To complement the mail shirt some warriors illustrated on the tapestry 
have leg and arm defences also made of mail. And such defences seem to have become increasingly popular. And understandably so. A stab with an axe or a knife is just as deadly on the arm as it is on the body. And all parts need to be protected. The greatest drawback of mail armour seems to have been its weight. And that's still a problem today with armour. To wear a long male hauberk hanging as a dead weight from the shoulders for a very long period of time would have sapped the strength of a man, even one trained from childhood, to bear armour. And it would appear that the Normans were well aware of this. And so that they wore armour only when absolutely necessary. The Chanson de Roland was a text written at the end of the 11th century by an Anglo-Norman and it contains so much accurate information about the armour and the weapons of the Normans and how they were used. In this work, neither armour nor weapons were worn or held while fighting men were on the march. The only exception was unless there was some form of immediate danger such as an ambush. It would appear that the full equipment of war was only put on just before the battle and sometimes went in sight of the enemy. Corroboration of this can be found in the works of several Norman historians. For instance, in the Chronicle of Battelle Abbey, states that, quote, Duke William halted the advance of his army from Hastings at Hesheland, less than three miles from waiting Saxon forces, so that he might put on his armour, and one can assume that most of his army dressed themselves for battle at the same time, end quote. Now, the Abbey Chronicle was written in the 1160s, thus giving us a very accurate, contemporaneous description of the standing operation procedures for the Normans at that time. That chainmail armour was sometimes too debilitating and too weighty for soldiers of the time. And this can be shown in an anecdote in the Chronicles of William of Potier, who was writing in between 1071 and 1076. He recounts that when William landed at Pevensey, on an inhospitable and unfriendly shore, he reconnoitred the surrounding area with about 25 riders, one of whom became so exhausted that, despite the possibility of attack, the Duke carried his male hauberk for him upon their return. The hauberk was protection for the torso and sometimes the extremities, but the Norman soldier also needed protection for his head, and so they wore a steel helmet or a helm usually in a conical shape. Most had wide nasals to protect the nose. These helms were apparently made in either one piece or in several segments riveted together and sometimes it seems attached to a supporting framework of steel bands. The Chanson de Roland tells us that the helms of kings and princes were frequently set with jewels normally above the nasal. These helms were held firmly on the head by means of laces tied underneath the chin. Apart from the helm and the mail shirt, the third piece of protective equipment carried by a Norman knight was a shield that was worn to cover the left side of the body and protect the bridle hand. Now, some people may argue that the shield is more of a weapon rather than armour, so that's why I use the term protective equipment, because it's kind of, well, it's both in a sense. Most popular was the kite-shaped shield, a type that was introduced in the late 10th century, which offered greater protection to the soldiers than the older rounded shield. Now, 
The round shield never went completely out of fashion and it was shown being used by cavalry in the 11th and the 12th century also. Whatever the shape of the shield, most were made from wood, covered with leather and often painted with decorative patterns and shapes. The basic weapon of Norman cavalry and infantry was a spear with a leaf-shaped head of iron and a wooden haft, usually made of ash. The only difference visible in contemporary illustrations between infantry and cavalry spears is that the infantry spears sometimes appeared thicker in the haft. The reason for this was because massed infantry would form a hedge of spears as protection against a cavalry charge. The spear points angled forward and the haft resting on the ground to absorb the shock. In fact, this type of tactic would be used by all militaries across the world as an anti-cavalry tactic to much greater effect right until the 19th century. Now obviously they wouldn't be using spears, but rather bayonets on the end of their muskets. Another interesting point on the spear was that both the infantry and cavalry spear had a horizontal crossbar just beneath the head. And the gruesome reason for its presence was to prevent excessive penetration of your enemy. Meaning, if you have an 8 foot long spear and you stab your enemy, you don't need to stab him 5 foot through. You can just do enough to kill him and pull it back out. That crossbar will make sure the job is done, but prevent excessive penetration. Meaning you're not going to waste a lot of time trying to pull your spear out of the dead man. But this was not the usual way in which the spears were used. In contemporary illustrations, they are more frequently shown held above the head, wheeling in a downward stabbing motion, the same technique being used by both infantry and cavalry. Using this technique, the spear could be thrown when required, and this would explain why in most manuscript illustrations of the 11th and 12th centuries, spears would appear to be of lightweight construction. But the spear isn't the first thing you think of when you think of Normans. The first thing that pops into your mind is a soldier in armour on horseback. And the cavalry unit of the Norman armies were absolutely vital in the conquest of Ireland. The basic fighting cavalry unit was the Conroy. This unit consisted of 20 to 30 men in two or three ranks. Each Conroy would have been identified by its own small spear-mounted flag, which was called the Confanon. While shield devices were probably decorative at the time, these flags were essential for command and control and for giving orders. The evidence suggests that the Norman Conroy, or the larger bataille to which it contributed, was well able to make control charges, to wheel around, to turn, and even to feign retreat in battle. A very difficult manoeuvre, demanding strict discipline and adequate signalling procedures. This feign retreat was said to have been a vital key to success for William the Conqueror's left flank in the Battle of Hastings in 1066. In fact, this feigned retreat was super successful and was one of the main tactics used by the 13th century Mongols in many of their battles across Eurasia. The cavalry spear, or lance as we know it today, was the lighter version of the infantry spear and was used much in the same way, either at arm's length or overarm, or couched under the arm to give greater rigidity and force to the weapon in attack. When couched, the spear would be crossed over the horse's neck from right to left where it could be balanced. And this technique had the added advantage that the opponents approached each other left side to left side and it was on the left side that they had the added protection of the shield. If it's easier to think about it, just look at any jousting video on YouTube 
whether it's a video of that full metal jousting on the History Channel or on Game of Thrones or on that Heat Ledger movie, A Knight's Tale. That gives you an idea of what these guys were up to. Shield was in the left hand, Lance was in the right hand, crossed over the horse's neck and then had that extra protection on the left side. The effect of a charge of an armoured horseman couching his lance is described in graphic and bloody detail in the Chanson de Roland. Now, I've already mentioned this in the last podcast, but I think it's just so good I'm going to have to mention it again. Quote, He turns his horse and urges him forward. He aims a great blow with all his might. He breaks the shield and tears through the hauberk. He pierces the chest and shatters the breastbone. He drives the broken backbone through the man's back and out on his spear's point brings out soul and all. Pushed right through, he pushes him off his saddle and flings him dead a spear's length from his war horse. End quote. Even allowing for some poetic exaggeration, the real effect of a well-trained lance blow must have been deadly, if not spectacular, even against a fully armoured man as the chanson de Roland suggests. He breaks through his shield, armour and pushes right through his body as if it was a hot knife through butter. Just imagine being there to visualise that. But that wasn't the only use of the cavalry lance. The cavalry spear was lighter and so it could be thrown when required. And the Bayou Tapestry shows not only some of the Norman cavalry throwing spears at the Saxon forces but also an ammunition wagon arriving with replacement spears. But if the lance and the spear were the most common of weapons, they do not appear to have been most common amongst the Norman aristocracy. The majority of the infantry were usually armed with only a spear. However, most cavalrymen also carried a sword. An almost religious mystique surrounded this weapon, heightened no doubt by the pseudo-religious significance of the cross shape of the hilt. Veneration of the sword runs through both Saxon and Viking literature and is one of the most enduring legacies of the Dark Ages. The reason is probably that, unlike the lance or the spear that were easily broken and usually discarded during the battle, the sword was a valuable possession, a trusty defender often handed down from generation to generation. Many times swords were given personal names and sometimes had relics concealed in the pommel and religious inscriptions on the blade to give the owner the protection of the Almighty, his angels, or one of his saints. The detailed description of cavalry combat given in the Chanson de Roland show quite clearly that the sword was not used until the spear was broken or had been lost. Only then would the sword be drawn from its wooden sheath. The favourite sword stroke of the Norman knights was the downward cutting blow delivered to the top of the head. Well aimed, it could cut through both the helm, male quiff and the skull. The hero Roland is even described as killing a rider and horse with one blow, cleaving through the head, trunk, saddle and the horse itself. And even though this is obviously exaggerated, it may not be so far from the truth. Certainly literature and illustrations show that the sword was conceived almost entirely as a cutting weapon, the trusting stroke being used only for administering the coup de grace. Such arms, armour, heavy horses which they rode and the skill and daring of the riders gave the Normans great power as shock troops. The Irish had no such warriors as these Norman knights. And just like the Spanish horsemen in Mexico, these knights dominated the battlefield. The Irish did have horses and cavalry, but they lacked stirrups. And this simple piece of metal allowed a Norman knight to combine both his and the horse's weight and momentum to launch a withering blow on an opponent. The Irish, on the other hand, 
either dismounted before battle or they threw their spear but they could not withstand a cavalry charge nor could they replicate the destructive power of one. Such was the destructive force that the Byzantine Anna Comnena wrote that a Norman cavalry charge could break down the walls of Babylon. The typical sword of a Norman soldier was a very simple and serviceable weapon with a double-edged straight blade just over a yard long tapering to a point. A rounded hollow, or a fuller as it's known, ran down the blade to near the point and enabled the blade to be made lighter and thus easier to wield without in any way impairing its strength. The hand was protected by a simple metal crossguard and although no grip survived, they were almost certainly made out of wood and probably bound with interlaced thongs of cord and leather. The pommel on a sword was usually circular in shape and although sometimes decorative, the pommel's real purpose was to act as a counterweight to the blade, thus making the sword easier to wield in battle. The sword and spear were not the only bladed hand weapons used by the Normans. The axe, that terribly effective weapon synonymous with the Vikings, was still being used by their Norman descendants, though it does seem to have been more popular amongst the Irish. And if you look at the Bayou Tapestry, the axe inflicts more dire wounds than any other weapon on the battlefield. And we'll see just how effective this weapon can be in Dublin 1171 when I talk about the Viking berserker, John the Mad. Although spears could be thrown when necessary, the main projectile of the Norman army was the bow and arrow. And this was used for long range fighting to keep the enemy from engaging in hand to hand combat. The Bayou Tapestry shows Duke William's archer infantry, their quivers either slung over their shoulders or hung from the waist, playing an important part in the battle. In fact, Harold will get a Norman arrow straight in the eye. Such was their importance and accuracy. The Normans were archers before their arrival in England, and they had only improved their archery by coming into contact with the native bowmen of Wales. And these native bowmen would evolve to become the longbowmen of England, who two centuries later, won the battles of Cressy and Agincourt almost single-handedly. In Ireland, the Norman archers gave their compatriots a reach and firepower which their opponents lacked. The Irish made very little use of the bow in battle. Certainly the bow had an enduring place in the Anglo-Norman army. After Hastings, the bow seemed to have been used almost exclusively as an infantry weapon but the Bayou Tapestry attests to the fact that it could occasionally be used by mounted troops for pursuit of a fleeing enemy. In fact, mounted archers were still in use in Ireland up until the late 16th century. Indeed, archers were often carried on knights' croppers in pursuit of fleeing troops or to advance quicker as a unit, and Rory O'Connor's men would have testified to that in 1171. Gerald of Wales mentioned that, quote, Archers were carried on the cruppers of horses to speed their attack. End quote. These two qualities, the weight of the mailed horseman in a charge and the missile strength of the bowmen, formed the basis of the Norman tactics. They sought consistently to exploit their advantage. Always they attacked, always they sought to fight in the open where they could use their horses. To be outnumbered meant nothing to them. When the Waterford men closed in on Raymond Le Gros in 1170 at the Battle of Bag and Bun, he rushed out to meet them. Strongbow and the Cogan, as we will see, came out to meet the Norsemen and the Irish at Dublin. Each time they were heavily outnumbered, but each time they took the gamble. The Normans were swift in their movements, as they showed at Bano Bay 
Bag and Bun, Wexford and Dublin. They were able to attack fortifications like Waterford and here their archery served them well but they avoided fighting behind walls. They had an eye for strategy and so they made certain possession of towns. They knew the importance of them. They had an eye for terrain and they were cautious of forest paths and they avoided the bogs like the plague because they simply couldn't use their horses to full effect out there. And in 1170, they chose the best way into Dublin behind the king's back. The Normans were infinitely crafty. G.A. Hayes McCoy has this to say about the Irish. Quote, In contrast, the Irish were poorly equipped, dilatory and too prone to the defensive. A few of their leaders may have had armour, but in general, they had none. As well as that, too often they were deployed as infantry and their cavalry was best used in chasing down fleeing enemy. The Irish fought on foot with spears, javelins, battle axes and swords. The attack of the male horse could, on firm ground, overrun them against a combination of horse and archers. The Irish were helpless. Now while the Irish did have huge amounts of courage and they were formidable infantry soldiers, the Irish shield wall was almost impenetrable to most infantry foes. But they always behaved as though they had plenty of time. As well as that, the Irish made no great use of the bow in battle, and so this gave the Normans an easy victory over them. The Norman-Welsh archers played a vital role in Strongbow's struggle against numerical odds. These Norman-Welsh archers could cut down the Irish infantry at distances of 100 plus yards without the Irish being able to inflict a single blow on the Normans. When Strongbow seized Dublin in 1170, the High King Rory O'Connor just went home. And while he would come back the next year, there was no aggressive policy to curtail this Norman expansion. Towns and fortifications then, as for centuries afterwards, daunted the Irish. End quote. At the date of the Dublin fighting, it appears that there were no more than 2,500 Normans in Ireland. That is, perhaps 250 knights 500 other lesser armed horsemen and 1,750 infantry, including archers. Some of these troops had remained to hold Waterford and Wexford. The Norman strength at Dublin cannot in the earlier part of the year have greatly exceeded 2,000 men. The breakup of that was roughly 200 knights, 400 other lesser horsemen and roughly 1,400 or so archers and infantry. And you must remember And you must remember, knights were not the chivalrous figures of romantic fiction or of later admiration who swung their swords in wrong cause or in right. These were fighting men, and fighting in the 12th century was a hard, uncertain and very bloody business. Men skilled and practised in the use of the weapons just described were truly formidable opponents. And however well protected an armoured knight might appear, his armour was not proof against such weapons in skilled hands. A well-trained blow would usually maim or kill, and often instant death was far more preferable to a lingering death from a festering wound. As aforementioned, these knights were fighting men whose service was a result of the feudal system. Land was given in that age by kings to their lords and to their lesser lords, who held it on the condition of providing knights or fully armed and trained and mounted men for service in all wars. These were the knights of the invasion, 
tough professionals, well equipped and above all well horsed. Such heavily armed horsemen were the tanks of the occasion. Like the tanks of 1939 and 40s, they were virtually invincible when they attacked on ground that suited them against an enemy that was deficient in striking power. They were the elite troops. These knights were fighting for conquest, for land and to make a name for themselves. Very few, if any, of these Normans were forced to come to Ireland. Service was voluntary and there was a personal attachment to a tried and tested brave leader. These ties of kindred, so strong and extensive in Wales, plus the love of adventure and the prospect of carving out an inheritance by the sword, drew huge numbers to the call of Strongbow. In mid-1171, two forces arrived outside of Dublin to contest its possession with the Normans, who were holding the town. One force was led by the Norse ex-king of Dublin, Haskelf MacTorkel. Haskelf, who had been run out of town by Milo de Cogan and his Norman comrades when they stormed the walls of Dublin amid negotiations. But he had not run off with his tail between his legs. Haskelf had gone overseas in the previous year to enlist support. The other force was the army of Rory O'Connor, the High King of Ireland and his allies. Now whether these two bodies were outside Dublin at the same time and whether they cooperated with one another in opposition to the invaders seems unlikely and it's a little bit obscure because the sources give conflicting accounts. Gerald of Wales, the Welsh chronicler of the Norman conquest of Ireland, claims that the Norsemen first attacked and then Rory and his allies showed up. Whereas in the poem of Dermot and the Arrow, that suggests that Rory and Haskulf had planned in advance to arrive in Dublin at the same time. Contemporary evidence then seems to indicate that Haskulf had come up first, attacked the Normans before the Irish had even made any attempt to get into position. The Dublin of 1171 was one of a small fortified settlement on the south bank of the River Liffey, the centre of which is on the high ground where Dublin Castle stands today. The town extended northward towards the Liffey, westward to a site of a bridge which was probably marked by the later Bridge Street, and it would move southward to where the River Poddle flowed below Castle Hill and eastward to the point near the present day Parliament Street, where the Poddle, long since covered over and running invisibly beneath the modern city, discharges into the Liffey. Dublin was not a massive expanse at all, it was roughly 600 metres long and 400 metres wide. This was not the prime fighting ground that Normans liked to find themselves in. They much preferred the wide open plains to make the most of their cavalry and archer attacks. But that's where the Normans found themselves on Whitsunday, which in 1171 was in the middle of May, and Haskell had arrived with 100 ships and supposedly 2,000 men. Among Haskell's companions was a renowned berserker known as John de Wode, which translates as John the Mad. And these warriors of the berserker tradition were renowned for their restlessness and frenzied attacks in battle. Quite often they would get inebriated with alcohol or hallucinogenic mushrooms, which were very common in Nordic societies. They would work themselves up into a rage and literally go berserk on their enemies, apparently being incapable of feeling any pain, but inflicting more than enough on their foe. The term berserk may derive from the term bare shirt or bare shirters, as they wore little, if any, armour into battle. The Norse came ashore below the town at a place called the Stein. 
This was an open space on the south bank of the River Liffey in an area where Trinity College now stands. Its name derived from a pillar stone which had been erected there, most likely by the Norsemen of Dublin. Milo de Cogan, the governor of the city, which basically meant he was the chief officer in command of the Norman armed forces in Dublin, got his men ready for the attack. De Cogan even asked an Irish king who was an ally not to come to their help because it was the will of God to decide who will win that day. Once they were ready, the Normans moved outside the safety of the fortifications and began fighting in the open against a combined force of Dublin men and their allies, which could have easily exceeded, if not matched, the total number of Normans. John the Mad seems to be either in charge or one of the foremost commanders as he led the Dublin men against Normans in the famous Viking Shield Wall. This struggle took place in the vicinity of present-day Dame Street, somewhere between Trinity College and where Parliament Street is in front of City Hall. Milo de Cogan, who led the Normans, was attacked and had 500 men kill or wounded, and he fell back to the East Gate. It's unclear as accounts vary, but I think the Normans fell back within the confines of the walls, but didn't go in them. They just fell back close enough for Milo to be able to give orders to his sergeants and archers on the battlements. The Cogan's orders were, quote, to hurl their lances and shoot their arrows at these men close to the walls, end quote. While he continued to struggle at the East Gate, the Cogan came up with a plan. He decided to send his brother Richard secretly and hurriedly through the West Gate on the other side of the town. His brother Richard, riding hard, he fetched a circuit around the centre of the south side of the city of Dublin and came down heavily and noisily on Haskell's rear. This completely caught Haskell and John DeWode off guard and it was a perfect deployment of a textbook pincer movement. This meant that the Normans had encircled Haskulf and his Norsemen, completely cutting off their line of retreat to their shipping and to their camp. The Norsemen's options were three. They could fight on, surrender or die. We are led to believe that in the moment of falling upon their Viking adversaries, Richard de Cogan shouted, quote, Strike renowned barons, strike vassals, speedily, spare not these men, end quote. Now, while that's grossly exaggerated, part of me wants to believe that it's true. Part of me believes in that, you know, that's the romantic side of it. But the realistic side of me just believes that it was probably just a simple war cry to inflict as much fear into their enemy as possible. The rear of the Norse shield wall turned to face Richard. Miles then in the front, ever audacious, he flung every available man at the Vikings' red iron-rimmed shields, locked now in a hasty shield wall. But the archers on the battlements shot gaps in Haskell's packed warriors from very close range, and the heavy horsemen just rode through them. John the Wode, who had killed nine to ten men in that short foray, died fighting. Gerald of Wales writes that his terrible axe that had sliced straight through a knight's armour and took his leg clean off from the tie in a single stroke was unable to save him. The poet in Dermot and the Earl, being on the more theatrical side of things, claimed that John fell by the sword of Milo de Cogan himself in an epic one-on-one -on -one battle. The more down-to-earth Gerald of Wales claimed that John de Wode was, quote, slain by the aid of Walter de Ridnesfort and some others, end quote. 
and I don't know which one I prefer. An epic one-on-one -on -one battle, a romantic knight versus a wild berserker, taking it on and just battling it out until one of them fell. Or do I prefer the story that it took more than one man to take down this wild berserker? Either way, all around John the Mad died Dublin men and Islanders. Milo and the Normans lay waste to any stragglers that were unable or unfortunate enough to be unable to get to their ships to make their escape. Contemporary accounts will say that 1,500 Norsemen were to lose their lives in this phase of the battle. The Normans then raided and took a large amount of gold and silver from the Vikings camp and the remaining ships that had not got away. Haskell MacTorkel, the previous Norse king of Dublin, fell into their hands as a prisoner while he was trying to make his escape to his ship. And he was brought back in triumph as a prisoner to the city that he was a ruler not one year before. Haskell was reserved for ransom, but when he was brought before Milo de Cogan, he was foolish enough to vent his indignation before the crowded court, and he said, quote, We are come now with a small band, but this is only the commencement of our enterprise. And if my life be spared, it will soon be followed by much more formidable attempts. End quote. Basically, what Haskell was saying was, I know I'm being ransomed, and as soon as I get out that door, I'm going to come back with far more of my men, and we're going to get you back for this. Mark my words, we'll get you back. And upon hearing this, Milo de Cogan thought about what Haskell had said, and so he chopped his head off, not wanting to risk another major encounter with these Norsemen. I quote Gerald of Wales when I say, quote, Thus, Haskell, whose life had been pardoned, lost it for an arrogant speech. End quote. This was the end of the first phase of the Norman fight for Dublin. But this was the easy stage. And within a few short weeks, the Normans would be surrounded on all sides by Rory O'Connor and his allies. They would be vastly outnumbered at at least 15 or 16 to 1. Running low on food and cut off from all supplies and reinforcements, the mettle of these Normans was going to be tested. During the summer months of 1171, Rory O'Connor, the High King of Ireland, blockaded Dublin town with a vast number of men. Rory brought up his own Connacht men and lay encamped with them at Castleknock. His allies were Tyrone O'Rourke of Breffney and Mead, Ome Lachlan, also of Mead, O'Carroll of Oriel, all with their own troops, had come up to Dublin. Rory was also aided by MacDonaghy, the King of Ullia, present-day Antrim and Down, and they were encamped at Clontarf. In Dawkey were armies loyal to Archbishop of Dublin, Lawrence O'Toole. And to give you an idea of the conflicted nature of Irish society at the time, Murtuk McMurrow, the nephew of Dermot McMurrow, Rory's enemy, was also allied to Rory. Murtoch contested Strongbow's kingship of Leinster and wanted to be in that position himself. Even the King of Thomond, Donal O'Brien, was present and had encamped at Kilmainham. To prevent a Norman escape by the sea, Rory had called on the help of the King of the Isle of Man, King Gothrid, who had provided 30 ships of his finest warriors. Contemporaries placed the force commanded by Rory O'Connor at 30,000 men. Now, even if that number is much exaggerated, Rory and his allies represented the best of the Irish fighters, and they were well placed north, south, east and west of the River Liffey to enforce this blockade. 
but there seems to have been no possibility of an Irish attack. Attacking fortifications was not an Irish specialty. When Hasculf and his Norsemen attacked the Dublin city, Rory and his allies were probably not even assembled in Dublin just yet. And while the remnants of Haskell's force may have cooperated with Rory and his allies afterwards, there was still no impetus for an attack on the town itself. But Rory's inactivity was not without effect. The contemporary accounts that we have suggest that he inflicted a two-month siege on Strongbow and his men in Dublin City. In Dublin, supplies ran short. Blockaded by land and sea, and experiencing the momentary displeasure of King Henry II, who prevented the dispatch of supplies from England, Strongbow and his Normans had to tighten their belts. Gerald of Wales informs us, quote, The King of England made a proclamation that, in the future, no ship sailing from any part of his dominions should carry anything to Ireland, and that all his subjects who had been at any time conveyed there should return before the ensuing Easter, on pain of forfeiting all of their lands and being banished from the kingdom forever. End quote. And even though Strongbow had sent Raymond Le Gros to parley with King Henry II to lift this embargo and send the much needed men and supplies to the besieged Normans, King Henry, quote, in great coldness, deferred his reply. End quote. You see, King Henry II was severely paranoid, jealous, and ever cautious of his subjects trying to overstep their mark and possibly overthrow his rule. The recent successes of Strongbow and his compatriots were just the thing that Henry didn't like and wanted to quell in a bid to maintain his own power. Henry would send no help to Strongbow. The Archbishop of Dublin, Lawrence O'Toole, was a prisoner within the city's confines, but was apparently able to keep in touch with affairs outside. It was said that he had done his best to encourage the Norse and his Irish allies to intensify the blockade. And by September 1171, this had worked so well that Strongbow offered to negotiate with the High King. Rory, confident in his own strength and underestimating his enemy, and tried to bring Strongbow to bow before him. He proposed peace on the condition that Strongbow and his allies might retain the coastal towns of Dublin, Wexford and Waterford, but no more. They would have to lose Leinster and any of the other lands that Dermot McMurrow had purported to give Strongbow. Nor were they allowed to covet any other part of Ireland and attempt to conquer it. And crucially, if they do not accept these terms, the High King promised them that they would have a battle the very next day where the Normans were outnumbered 50 to 1 and would be crushed. These terms certainly weren't the worst ever. Rory could have simply said, you can either leave altogether empty-handed or we'll kill you. But it was contrary to every inclination of the Normans to accept an offer such as this, which would coop them up behind walls. They were abandoned by their king to fend for themselves, and if they wanted better terms than the terms Rory O'Connor was offering, they were going to have to fight for it. You must remember, these Norman soldiers had left all their possessions and lands in Britain, precisely to come to Ireland to forge a new life for themselves. New lands become masters of their own destiny and step into the sunshine and not be under the foot of King Henry who already held them in low regard. To accept this offer by Rory would be a slap in the face to each and every one of them. This would simply not do. 
the only thing to do was to attack. And so, the Normans attacked. The Archbishop of Dublin, Lawrence O'Toole, translated the terms of surrender for Strongbow, and Gerald of Wales picks up the story. Quote, when the Earl had heard what the Archbishop translated, then Strongbow called Milo de Cogan and said, quoting Strongbow now, Barons, make all your men arm. In the name of the Almighty Father, in the foremost van, sally forth. End quote. The Norman soldiers reacted in the way they knew best. Aggressively and prepared for war. Morris Fitzgerald, one of the leading Normans, fired up his troops before battle with a speech. He called out, quote, Ye brave youths, my comrades in war, who have gone through so many perils with me and have been ever courageous and indomitable. If we now consider what we are, under what leader, and for what purpose we encounter our present dangers, our wanted valour will still be in the ascendant, and the good fortune of our former wars will not desert us. Remember that we have left behind in our native lands ample patrimonies which we have lost through domestic frauds and intestine mischiefs. We have come here, not for the sake of pay or plunder, but induced by the promise of towns and lands to be granted to us and our heirs forever. If the victory be won by our prowess and the realm of Ireland be secured by our enterprise for us and our heirs forever, how great will that glory be? How worthy of being achieved even by the loss of life and the contempt of death? For what is death but a momentary interval of time, a brief delay, and as if it was a short sleep between fleeting life and that which is eternal. What is death but a short passage from things transitory to things eternal? We must all die because that is the inevitable and the common faith of mankind. And though no splendid or glorious actions may have made us illustrious during life, by our deaths at least, we may make our names memorable in the future ages. Death is only to be feared by those who when they die appear as though all has perished with them. But it has no terror for such as us, who have gained honour which can never fall into oblivion. Wherefore, ye valiant men, let us strive to shrew this day, that whither, by victory or death, gain immortal fame as a reward for your valour. End quote. Now I don't know about you, but I think that that speech is absolutely fantastic. I think that speech is up there with Mel Gibson's speech in Braveheart. He touches on all the main points that men want to hear. He tells them that they are brave. He gives them the reason why they fight. He tells them not to be afraid of death. That they will always be remembered and live on eternally. What man doesn't want to hear that just before he goes out to battle and faces death head on? Once they were ready, the Normans sallied suddenly from Dublin at one o'clock on a September afternoon and attacked the High King Rory O'Connor. They went out in three divisions the ubiquitous formation that became van, main and rear in action. Raymond Le Gros led with 20 knights, 100 fighting men and 60 archers. Milo de Cogan followed with 30 knights, 60 archers and 100 sergeants. Strongbow and Morris Fitzgerald led the 3rd division which was the main body of 40 knights, 100 sergeants and 60 archers. Each division probably had other troops such as light horsemen as well. Probably all were mounted as aforementioned some of the archers who were usually infantry were carried on the cruppers of the horsemen. 
as well as these Normans, we are told that those of the Leinster Irish who had remained faithful to Dermot and to Strongbow were amongst them, as well as some of the citizens of Dublin. But Strongbow's force could not have numbered more than a thousand troops. Some of the men would have had to be left behind in the town to guard it in case their attack fails. And the fight with Haskulf and the siege during the summer had taken their toll on Strongbow's original strength. There's even a suggestion that some of these Normans had returned to England from Dublin during the summer, as to not suffer the wrath of King Henry II. Strongbow decided to cut the head off the snake rather than to attack its body. If they were successful in killing the High King of Ireland, surely all his vassal kings would bend the knee to Strongbow and the Normans, or at the very least fear them and not be so quick to take up arms against them. The Norman column crossed the Liffey Bridge and moved north towards Finglas. They turned left and moved rapidly up the Tolka River Valley, behind the present-day Phoenix Park. Battles usually began early in the morning at dawn, but not in the idle hour of the early afternoon. The surprise attack had been a favourite tactic of the Normans. They picked the time and the place, and the result was panic and chaos. O'Connor's troops were relaxing and preparing for battle the very next day. They had no idea that Strongbow and his Norman knights were racing towards their camp, when all of a sudden the Norman cavalry crashed through the flank and the rear of Rory's camp. The Irish were completely unprepared and thrown into disarray. The Connacht men had to immediately stop what they were doing and scramble to get their weapons and try to make a stand. But in this situation, numbers meant little. Raymond Le Gros, Milo de Cogan, Morris Fitzgerald and his sons, they competed with one another in the impetuosity of the attack, each man trying to cut down more Irish than the other. The Norman knights wreaked havoc on the Irish camp as they rode through the camp, trampling Connacht men underfoot, slashing and stabbing with spear and sword alike. The details of this struggle are scant, but there is enough to get an understanding of what happened on that fateful day. Gerald of Wales picks up the story and tells us that quote, Raymond Le Gros threw himself onto the enemy long before the rest of his troops came up to meet him and he pierced two Irish soldiers through with one lance. This urged on his other companions to follow suit and make a great slaughter of the enemy. End quote. How the Irish reacted, we do not know for certain but we are told that there was great confusion and there seems little doubt that the Irish casualties list was phenomenal. The Song of Dermot and the Earl claims that, quote, more than 1,500 of these Irishmen were slain, while of the English there was only one foot sergeant wounded, end quote. And what happened to Rory O'Connor? Well, have you ever heard of the term being caught with your pants down? Or have you ever had that dream where you go to school or work naked? Well, this is what happened to Rory O'Connor, in a sense. The High King was caught in his bat during the Norman attack. However, while Rory may not have managed to escape the indignity of the situation, he did manage to escape and save his life amid all the confusion. The same cannot be said for Rory's men, as the slaughter of the Irish fugitives continued well into the evening, by which time the Irish were thoroughly routed. It is said the only reason why the Normans stopped the slaughter was because they had grown tired and could not kill any more. Here in Dublin 1171, as elsewhere in the early years of the invasion, 
the Norman knight and archer fighting on their own chosen ground were invincible, especially against an enemy that was caught off guard and not ready to take battle. Strongbow led his men back into Dublin city in the darkness of the autumn evening, laden down with food and the spoils of battle which they had stolen from Rory's camp. As word spread to the other armies of Rory's defeat, the various camps around Dublin slowly disintegrated and the siege was soon raised. Tiernan O'Rourke, still vying for revenge, led in an abortive attempt to engage in Normans, but it was unsuccessful and O'Rourke lost his son in the attempt. There was no doubt about the Norman victory for the Battle of Dublin in 1171. It was a classic example of how to defeat an enemy who has a numerical advantage over you by not allowing them to choose the time and place and how the battle was to be fought. And from this moment on, everything in Ireland would change. No longer would Irish affairs be handled by Irishmen with the input of the occasional foreign raider. From this point on, there would be an English presence in Ireland for centuries onwards. And while that strength of the English presence waxed and waned from time to time, it would be a telling factor in this subsequent near millennium of Irish history. But it wasn't always bad. Soon after the Battle of Dublin in 1171, the Normans intermarried with the Gaelic Irish. They adopted Gaelic Irish customs until they became more Irish than the Irish themselves. The famous Anglo-Irish families of the Butlers, the Fitzgeralds, Ormonds and others dominated Irish politics for centuries afterwards. Many of these siding with Gaelic Irish brethren against the English powers in Ireland. When the American historian William Hickling Prescott concluded his classic account of the history of the conquest of Mexico, he reflected that the accomplishment by a mere handful of indignant adventurers of the vast enterprise which they had undertaken was something from fictitious reality. Prescott realised that the Spanish conquistadors had done something that was almost too good to be true. Bernal Diaz, who was one of these conquistadors, was conscious of the magnitude of the achievement and he asked what other soldiers in this world could have done so much. I believe that the victory gained by the Norman invaders over the forces of the High King of Ireland outside of Dublin in 1171 was scarcely less extraordinary. They too were a few against thousands, a handful of indignant adventurers who made possible the eventual conquest of a kingdom. The quote W.B. Yeats All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty was born. Hi folks, it's David here. I hope you're enjoying the show. Just wanted to drop you a line saying that if you would like to critique or if you'd like to give me some feedback, please feel free to do so on my social media. You'll find me on Twitter at Ireland Battles. Okay, so that's at Ireland Battles on Twitter. And on Instagram, I'm The Irish at War. Or you can check me out on my website, theirishatwar.com. My Facebook page was created, but then they got rid of it. So I'm trying to get that sorted out. But either way, hit me up on any of those. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Whether you think I'm the worst thing ever or that I've changed your life for the best. Or something in between. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to tell all your friends about this and click and download 
subscribe on SoundCloud or on iTunes and tell them to do so too. It would be really greatly appreciated, guys. I would really love that. So thanks for listening and I'll talk to you later. Good luck.